some of what's coming in the next five weeks might not make nearly as much sense to you as it would if you heard that message. So there's my little uh, teaser, my advertisement for what should be online today. Um, we're going to build on last week's foundation this morning. What we've been saying we're, uh, about wisdom in general and about Job in specific is something like this. Wisdom, books like Proverbs in the Bible, books like Job or Ecclesiastes, wisdom in the Bible is about life. It's about our lives, about the real ins and outs of them, the actual experiences that we have. It doesn't turn a blind eye to anything that comes up in human experience. Wisdom is about how to live in the world as it is, not as we wish that it was. Wisdom is about how to recognize the order that's there, to be honest when that order is hidden, and to look to God, the fear of the Lord and His perspective, before we look to our own. And if wisdom is about what's true, if wisdom is about what living well in light of what's true, if wisdom is about facing up with honesty to the world as it is, Wisdom has got to account for the brokenness of the world. Wisdom has to account for the fact of suffering, and not just suffering. Wisdom has to account for the fact of innocent suffering. That people suffer when what they're experiencing isn't tied at all to anything that they've done. What's the wise way to understand and live with the reality of innocent suffering? That's the question at the heart of Job. Job is one of the Bible's greatest pieces of literature. It's a book of incredible imagery, of amazing language, of mystery, of relevance and power. Last week, we introduced the story that's at the heart of the book of Job. The first couple chapters of the book, the last chapter of the book, tell the story of a man who was wise, he was good, and he was enjoying all of the benefits that the Bible says come to the wise. He had it all. And then he lost it all. That was the first two chapters. That was the ending to the book. In between the first two chapters to Job and the end of Job is 30 plus chapters of poetry. And in this poetry, we watch Job, the innocent sufferer, wrestling with what it is that's happened to him. For 30 plus chapters, Job carries on a dialogue about his experience, trying to cope, trying to find some sort of understanding of what has happened. But Job doesn't wrestle with these questions on his own. That 30 plus chapters, from picking up in chapter 3 all the way to chapter 37, Job is wrestling with his experience in a conversation with three of his closest friends who hear about what's happened to him, come to him to try to comfort him, but end up doing anything but comfort him. Here's the way, I want to give you a, a sort of road map to how the conversation plays out. Because it's so long, obviously we're not going to read it all or unpack it all. I want to give you a road map to how it plays out before we get into some of the details, some of the specifics that will help you get a taste of it. So there's picking up in, 
in, in chapter 4, going through uh, into, the, into chapter 37, we see Job having a conversation with his friends in three separate cycles. The way it goes is, one of the, Job, will, Job speaks to kick it all off, then one of his friends speaks, a guy named Eliphaz, then Job responds to him. That's chapters 4 and 5 for Eliphaz's speech, and chapter 6 and 7 for Job's response. Then his buddy Bildad jumps in, chapter 8. He speaks into Job's situation. Job responds in chapters 9 and 10. Then Zophar speaks up in chapter 11. Job responds in chapters 12 to 14. There's your first cycle. So that happens three separate times in this 30 plus chapters. Where Job's friend speaks, Job replies. Friend speaks, Job replies. Friend speaks, Job replies. Cycle one. Same thing for cycle two. Same thing for cycle three. Now, there's great beauty and power in all of this language. I highly recommend that you read it all. But we don't have to look at it all because they basically say the same things over and over and over again. They say it in different ways. They get at it with nuance and vivid imagery, but it's the same message. So what we want to do today is try to get a taste of the message. What did they say? How did Job respond? Even more specifically, here's the question we want to answer today. What does it look like to comfort those who suffer with wisdom? What is a wise way to comfort the suffering? Here at Trinity, one of the, I mentioned earlier that we're having today a new members class. That, that class is where we talk about the covenant of promises we make to each other that define how we're going to love one another, what our community is going to look like. One of the promises that we make is that we rejoice and mourn together, that we bear one another's burdens, that we're going to be a kind of community where people can be in pain and be honest about it, where they don't have to fear being shamed for the hard things in their lives, where they will find ears that are willing to listen and words that are willing to speak, but only with wisdom, only in ways that are appropriate to the situation. So how do we do that? We've promised to do that for each other. What does that look like? It's complicated right? If you've ever tried it, you know that. That's what the bulk of Job is about. And it does that, it gets us there by warning us with a really, really poor model for how to care for somebody who's in suffering. That's Job's friends. Now, I want to begin by reading the scene that sets up the dialogue. I'm going to read from the end of Job chapter 2. You don't have a Bible this morning. We've got Bibles provided at the middle of each aisle. Somebody can pass one down to you if you need one. Um, Job is almost in the middle of the Bible. So turn to the middle. Probably going to be in Psalms or Proverbs. Flip back to your left. You'll find Job. Look at chapter 2. We're going to read from the last three verses of that chapter. I'm going to ask you now, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when Job's three friends heard all of this, evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him 
for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to start by giving Job's friends their due. They got a lot right in their counsel to Job. I want to walk through what Job's friends got right, then what Job's friends got wrong, and then what Job's friends teach us. What they got right starts in the passage we just read. They get off to a great start. They give Job company. Where we left Job last week, Job was completely, utterly alone. He had just lost everything. He had just come down with a disease that covered his entire body with painful sores. He's sitting on an ash heap, the the city dump outside the walls of the city, all by himself, scratching himself with a broken piece of pottery. Even his wife, his one living immediate family member, comes to him and tells him, just curse God and die. That's where we found, left Job. All alone with his memories and children and his happy times. With his questions about what went wrong. With the searing pain in his body. You ever comforted somebody who's anywhere close to that? It's uncomfortable. Right? It hurts. Even Going to them brings on to you some of their pain. But Job's friends do go to him when they hear about it. They meet up, they organize it, and they go. When they see him, they weep. And still they come. The initial response to him when they get there seems pretty wise too. They don't immediately launch into all the things he should know about what's going on. What do they do? They just sit there. They're just with him. For seven days and seven nights, nobody says a word. They just cry together. They gave him time. Time to weep, to mourn, to process. And they wait for him. It's Job who breaks the silence. He breaks the silence in Job chapter 3. In this first speech, he just vents. He begins by cursing the day he was born. Look at Job chapter 3, verse 3. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Job wishes he'd never been born, never even conceived. Then in verse 11, he takes it even further. It would have been better if I had been born, that I had died immediately, maybe even been stillborn. Verse 11 says, why didn't I die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? Verse 16, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. Verse 
What he's asking is what so many who suffer have asked. Why would God make me only to torment me? Wouldn't it be better not to exist at all? Eliphaz is the first person to respond to Job. And I want to stick with his speech in chapters 4 and 5 as a window into what all the friends are saying over and over again through each of these cycles. In Eliphaz's first speech, and, and scattered throughout all the friends' speeches, we see one more thing that they got right. Lots of true statements. They speak to Job and his experience by saying a lot of things that are orthodox, that are correct, that Job himself admits, acknowledges, embraces. I want to give you a sense of what those are. It might strike you, especially if you, if you spend time reading through the whole conversation on your own. I think it will strike you how accurate their words are. Eliphaz begins by reminding Job that Job has often been the one who was comforting other people. And that now that his life has taken a turn for the worse, he ought to be willing to hear the same kind of comfort he's given to others. Eliphaz says, If one ventures a word with you, this is verse 2 of chapter 4, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. But now it's come to you, and you're impatient. It touches you, and you're dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? What was it that Job had told to other people that Eliphaz now brings back to him? What is the truth about God that they speak into Job's experience? A couple different things. They remind him that God is powerful. They remind him in his pain that God is powerful over all things. Look at chapter 5. Same speech from Eliphaz. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. As for me, Eliphaz counsels Job, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He he gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. What's he telling Job? God is not ignorant about what's going on with you. He's behind it. His power stretches over everything that has happened to you. He is not caught off guard by this. That's true. Job knows that. He believes that. God's power isn't caught off guard. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, Eliphaz continues, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. What's he saying? God is over everything that happens in the world. Over all the forces of nature, the rain that falls on the earth, over all the actions of men, the fools and the wise, they operate under his control. He reminds Job of his power, but not just that. They remind Job that God is just. 
That's hinted at in verse 16 that we just read. The poor have hope. Injustice shuts her mouth. But it comes out in lots of other places. In fact, this is the main thing that the friends always tell Job. God does what's right. For them, that means the righteous get blessing. The wicked get curses. God is just, which means everybody gets what they deserve. It comes out in so many different places. I want to point it to you in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 4. Same speech, sticking with the same speech so we don't have to flip too much. Remember, Eliphaz says in verse 7, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Do you see that? Everybody gets what they deserve in this life. By the breath of God, they perish. By the blast of his anger, they are consumed. Or as he puts it in chapter 5, verse 6, affliction doesn't come up from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Bad things don't just happen naturally. They sprout up from what the wicked have done to deserve the sorrow in their lives. There's something true here. Proverbs talks like this consistently all through it. We saw that last in our last book in this series. Something true that we see in experience. There is justice. And the Bible's consistently telling us that God is just, that He upholds it. We can look to Him for vindication, that we ought to fear Him for punishment. They tell Job not only that God is powerful and that God is just, but they tell him that God disciplines those that he loves, that you shouldn't hate it when God disciplines you, you should embrace it. Bill, or, excuse me, Eliphaz says this near the end of chapter 5. Blessed, verse 17 says, is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. That's true. Proverbs chapter 3 said the same thing. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. He disciplines those he loves like a father, his children. And finally, they speak truth about God's kindness to those who repent. They remind Job that God satisfies far more than any sinful pleasure ever could. Just sticking with Eliphaz, but jumping to his last speech. Chapter 22. No need to turn there. Eliphaz, closing his case with Job, says, Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Listen to this. What Eliphaz tells Job. If you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed. In other words, if you disavow everything else you'd lived for, all of the possessions you had amassed for yourself, if you treat them as nothing, then the Almighty will be your gold, your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. That's true. The Bible speaks that message consistently all across its books. His friends were right. God is powerful. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow. God is just. He does give what is deserved to all those who live on earth. 
He is kind to those who repent and satisfies those who look to him instead of the idols they had been pursuing with their lives. Now, all that stuff is true. His friends were right, and they came to him with truth. But what his friends get right is not the point of these verses. What the friends get right, that's not what the author of Job wants us to notice. This whole section, all 30 chapters, are put here to help us notice what the friends got wrong. Proverbs celebrated the words spoken at the right time. Wisdom is about knowing how to read the circumstances. What's going on in this case? What is needed here? What's specific about this experience? Wisdom speaks into that specific experience. Wisdom doesn't speak at people with general theories. Wisdom is always concrete. Wisdom always pays attention. Wisdom gets that life is complicated, that we don't see with the perspective of God. So wisdom holds back. Wisdom guards its words. Wisdom looks for the right word at the right time. And that's why Job's friends are fools. What they said was true, but what they said did not apply to Job. They think they see all that matters. They can't imagine that God would have purposes that they couldn't read. So what they do is, they draw the simple conclusion. God is powerful, that means he's behind Job's suffering. God is just, he gives to everybody what they deserve. Job is suffering, therefore Job deserves to suffer. Therefore, Job did wrong. Proverbs warns time and again about the effects of doing wrong, right? Proverbs always says, don't do this, it'll lead to bad consequences. Job's friends have reversed the order. They're saying, here are the bad consequences, so you must have done wrong. But they're doing that without paying attention to Job. They're completely untouched by the mystery of Job's experience, and that's why In Job's phrase, they are miserable comforters. Miserable comforters. Now, I want to give you a couple of tastes. Job's responses to his friends are the best place for us to see what was wrong with with, with the way his friends approached him. Job is the wise man in this story, in case that's not clear. He doesn't know what's going on. He, He doesn't have all the answers, but he's the wise man in this story. And his responses to his friends help us to see what was wrong in in their approach, help us to learn from from them what not to do for each other. His initial reply to Eliphaz's speech is in chapter 6. He pushes back against him in verses 14 to 17 of that chapter. Here's what he says. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That is a not-so-veiled charge against Eliphaz for withholding kindness for not trying to understand Job's perspective. My brothers, Job says, are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself, where, in other words, for a long time, there's plenty of water there. It's all ice and snow. 
Lots of water. But when they melt, they disappear. In other words, when it gets hot and you actually need what they offer, they're gone. They're nowhere to be found. Then in verse 24 to 30, Job invites them to show him what he's done wrong. Don't just assume I've done wrong. Show me. Teach me and I'll be silent, he says, verse 24. Make me understand how I've gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? In other words, you're reproving me, but you haven't said I did anything. You haven't shown me what I've done wrong. If you're going to reprove me, reprove me. Do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man does wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. Bildad doesn't like what Job just said. In chapter 8, he comes at him, takes another step. He thinks Job is questioning God's justice here. He doesn't think Job is just wrestling with mystery. He thinks Job is accusing God of being unjust. So he comes at him. The solution, he believes, is for Job to repent. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. Bildad says, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. In other words, your children deserve to die. That's why they died. If you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you're pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. There's a lot there that sounds orthodox, right? It sounds hopeful almost. But the assumption is still there. You need to repent because you're getting now what you deserve. Repent if you want better. One of the most forceful places this message comes out is in chapter 11. This is where Zophar speaks to Job. In chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, Zophar, sick of hearing Job push back and claim innocence, comes at him full guns blazing. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I'm clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. In other words, what you're getting now isn't even fully what you deserve. He could do worse. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher than he- it's higher than heaven? What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? Job's response to Zophar, who just repeating what Bildad said, who repeated what Eliphaz said for the first time, before they repeated again two more times, Job's response gets us straight to what's wrong with, the, with these friends. 
Note the sarcasm in his response in chapter 12. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. In other words, you think, you see all that is. You see nothing. Skipping down. I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who doesn't know such things as these? Everybody knows that the innocent are supposed to get good things and the guilty are supposed to get punished. You're telling me things I already know. That doesn't explain my experience. I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. Verse 5 gets more to the problem here. In the thought of one who's at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. When you've got it easy, Job says, you can look down on the pain of other people. You can despise them for their pain. You can blame them for it. When, it's, when you have it easy, you can explain their pain away. But when you have it easy, you miss what the innocent sufferer cannot miss that's verse 6 that the tents of robbers are at peace sometimes the wicked don't seem to get what they deserve those who provoke God are secure who bring their God in their hand sometimes the wicked the, those who reject God those who worship other gods live lives that are happy full prosperous and it's only your ease of life that allows you the space to miss that fact chapter 13 Job gives us the essence of the problem with his friends they think they get to speak for God verse 7 of chapter 13 says will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? Job's point is that they are assuming they see everything that is to be seen when really all they're doing is using his torment as an argument against him. His suffering is their argument that he has done wrong. Job says this in chapter 16, verse 8. He, God, has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. Or in chapter 19, verse 5. You magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me. Job isn't denying God has done this. He's denying that he deserves this punishment and his friends can't see it. They can't enter into his perspective. They believe they see everything. They see nothing. And we know, as readers of the story, what it is that they're missing. There's great irony here. Eliphaz elsewhere accuses Job of arrogance. Chapter 15, verse 8, he says, Have you listened in the counsel of God to Job? What we know is that Eliphaz did not listen in the counsel of God. That Eliphaz wasn't in that meeting when God allowed the accuser, the Satan, to come for Job, to make his point. 
Eliphaz didn't see that. He is the one who's presuming to have seen the counsels of God, and he hasn't. It's what Job sarcastically, or it's what Eliphaz sarcastically accuses Job of in chapter 22, verse 4. Is it for your fear of God that he reproves you and enters into judgment against you? Yes, that's it exactly. It is Job's fear of God that has gotten him into this situation. It is Job's fear of God, his exceptional faith, that's made God want to put him on display as proof that someone could be satisfied in God if everything else were stripped away. It is that he was innocent. And Eliphaz and his friends don't see it. They don't fear the Lord, in other words. They don't recognize their limits, that their perspective doesn't take in everything it should. And for that reason, they're fools. Job, as a book, is about the wise way to respond to suffering. And Job's friends are not wise because they think they see more than they see. Here's the point. What do we do with it? What does it teach us? What can we learn? Three quick things to think on this afternoon. Here's the first one. It is our job to understand our friends where they are. It's our job to understand our friends where they are. Suffering, one of the hardest things about pain is that it opens up a gap between you and everybody else who's not in your pain. It's isolating. You, you, you naturally assume no one can understand it. And in a sense, no one can. Because everyone's pain feels different, has different causes, shows up in different ways. You can even see it in the way Job's friends respond when they see him. They don't recognize him. He's different. He's other than he was. He's other than them. There's a gap there. And that gap scares us away as often as not. It makes us uncomfortable entering into the pain of our friends. It's disorienting and intimidating. And to give Job's friends the benefit of the doubt, surely that's one reason they never heard him on his terms. They never interacted with what he was saying. He kept telling them, but they didn't hear it. They just kept going back over and over to their old, worn-out, mechanical theories about how the world works. They weren't hearing Job. Our job is to be with our friends in their pain, to be patient, to listen to their questions, to try to understand why they're asking what they're asking, to bear their burdens with them, to mourn with those who mourn. It's our job to understand our friends where they are. That's the first thing. The second one comes right from that. It is not our job to explain how they got there. It's our job to understand our friends where they are. What is it like to be them in this situation? It is not our job to explain how they got there. That's the primary application, I think, of all this dialogue between Job and his friends. We cannot let ourselves offer up simplistic explanations for someone else's sorrow. That's what we tend to do. That's where we naturally are drawn. Maybe it stems some from our pride, from our confidence in our ability to read people, see what's really going on. In the empathy we talked about under point one, the, desire, the, the need to understand people on their terms, in their experience, 
when mixed with our pride, empathy can turn easily and quickly into judgment. We can think, we read people, we see people as they are. We see them in a way they don't. We see through them. We can explain them. And our attempt to understand turns into explaining them. Our attempt to read them turns into writing them off. Our attempt to enter in turns into dismissing them. Maybe our, our desire to explain the situation stems from fear. I, I experience this a lot myself. From the awkwardness of saying nothing. From the desire to offer something helpful. Something that people will be able to use. You've got to say something. But what? In that fear, our tendency is to just throw something at it. You know, just take something that we know has worked before and just heave it and hope for the best. Maybe we're afraid that God will get blamed and we really want to see him vindicated. But here's the point. Our friends who are suffering, they are not served by our simplistic answers to their real questions. Our simplistic answers cheapen their questions and make them feel misunderstood. And rather than honoring God, with our simplistic attempts to get him off the hook. Instead of honoring God, we speak for God. We put ourselves in his place, just like Job's friends did. And nobody gets to speak for God. No one defends him. So we offer our presence, we seek understanding, but... As another pastor put it, though all your being yearns to solve things, do not belittle deep mysteries with piddling answers. That's what Job's comforters did to him. It's not our job to understand our friends. It is our job to understand our friends where they are, not to explain how they got there. And finally, it's our job to point our friends to Jesus. And this is where we've got to be careful. We don't want to point our friends to Jesus as some sort of band-aid or a simple blanket that we just throw over their problem and then expect that if they really believed him, their problem would go away. They wouldn't feel the pain that they feel. They'd be better. We can use Jesus in the way Job's friends were using their simple, mechanistic understanding of the world. We can be just as guilty as they were while trying to apply Christ. So how do we avoid that? Here's what we have to remind our friends of. This may be what you need to be reminded of this morning. We need to remind them that Jesus understands them in a way that nobody else ever will. That Jesus knows the loneliness that comes with suffering. That he knows and endured the shame that comes with people assuming you deserve what you're getting. That's what they assumed of him. That Jesus, according to Hebrews, went through all of that just so that he could know you where you are in your pain. Just so he could lift you up and redeem you from it. Just so that he could intercede for you where you are with full knowledge from experience as he represents you at the throne room of the universe. And Hebrews says something else about Jesus too. That he is the final 
the ultimate word from God. Job's greatest trial, what his friends didn't get, was the silence of God in his pain. He knew God. He used to call out to him all the time and be heard. The world at one time made sense for him. And now where is he? What is he doing? And Job's friends come into that and try to speak for God. They don't like the silence either. They try to fill it up with their simplistic explanations of what's going on here. They speak for God, but they shouldn't have. They should have been okay with the silence. They should have realized this situation is bigger than them too. Who knows what God is doing? At some level, we've got to be willing to let God be silent in the specific sorrows that we experience. But we are never to rest content with that silence as the final word on the matter. Because even if we don't understand what God is doing in our specific sorrow, we do have in Jesus a final, ultimate word. Christ has come. God is not isolated from our pain. He has not abandoned us to our sorrow. He has entered in and absorbed in his own body every pain you could ever experience, and he has conquered it. We don't know why God still lets us go through what we go through. We do know that he's in it with us and that he has the power to lift us out of it. That in the grand scheme of his wise purposes, all things work together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he has proclaimed as worthy as his own children, not because they deserve it, but because of Jesus. Our friends in their pain need that word. It doesn't explain why they're, doing, why they're experiencing what they are. It does tell them what they're experiencing now is not it. Wise comforters know how to walk that line. God help us walk that line for each other. Father, we don't have that kind of wisdom. And we are so anxious to get to explanations that we jump over any kind of careful reflection on the situation into the theories and explanations we think should work. We need you to help us remember that we don't see with your perspective that we do need careful reflection that comes from wisdom, from paying attention to each other in our sorrow. And we need you to help us know how to add Jesus to the mix, how to remind each other of him in a way that fits, in a way that isn't simple or reductionistic, but hopeful, meaningful, even in the mystery of our pain. This is too much for us. Help us, Father, to be a culture where we suffer together in hope. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.